0: Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to continue our series in Hebrews 11 as we look and are reminded of the faith of those in the Old Testament and how that's an encouragement to Christ's church now. Hebrews 11, will begin with reading verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let me pray. Father, we ask that we would receive this for what it is, the word of the Lord. We ask that your son, the head of the church, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, would be pleased to speak through his word by the Spirit into our hearts and minds so that we would know what it is, not only what the Spirit was saying to the Hebrew Christians, but what the Spirit is saying to the church in every age. That we would be like Noah. That we would look by faith to things as yet unseen. That we would trust not only in Christ, but in all your promises. And every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord, that we have superintended in scripturation in our Bibles, that we would receive it as such. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you all know, and if you're young, you may not know this quite as well, but the more you age, the more you know the truth that enduring in a life of faith in Christ and his promises can be difficult to endure. This year as a nation, we've gone through a health pandemic, a difficult economy, and we're still in the midst of a tumultuous election. Our church has bounced around from place to place in order to meet, and while we've made progress in a good direction, we still have no Permanent church home. Many of us have suffered personally. We are confronted with the death of loved ones, the destruction of marriages, the rebellion of adult children, the diagnosis of cancer, and an uncertain future for Christ's church here in the U.S. Being part of the Christian Church in America once delivered you a kind of social capital. You'd be a part of the church just because it was actually helpful for business at times or helpful in the general society. But it's increasingly likely that being part of the Christian church in America will now lose you social capital. Listen, Sovereign Grace, it's increasingly likely that if you continue as a member of a biblically faithful church, you will be labeled a hater, a bigot, and an irredeemable racist. You will be part of the white, male, heteronormative, cisgender patriarchy. Let's be clear. However this election turns out, it remains true that both political parties, both political parties, have embraced the sexual revolution. And thus both political parties have bought into the fundamental structures of a psychologized version of the Marxist oppression narrative. What do I mean by that? Marx believed that there are two essential groups of people, the oppressed and the oppressors. Now he meant that in an economic way. But since Freud Marcuse, Gramsci, and others, the oppressed and the oppressors have now become psychological oppressors and psychologically oppressed. So that if you deny me my identity in some way, you're oppressing me. This revolution has been in the making for 200 years and it's swept to victory. Swept to victory. It's a social revolution that despises biblical Christianity. It defines sin in terms of, I feel harmed by you. Not in terms of, you actually sinned against me, but I feel harmed by you, therefore, you sinned. It is a social revolution that owns all the major institutions of power. It owns media, it owns big tech, it owns the universities, it owns the public schools, it owns entertainment, and it owns government. And friends, big technology has lured us into a sort of happily allowing them into all of our private spaces to gather information from us. You think they won't use that information (laughs) against you? Some government agencies and businesses are already collecting your digital footprint when you apply for a job and checking it out. You don't think they'll do that in other areas? Don't be naive. Now, my point is not to be a pessimist. I know it sounds pessimistic. You're like, I thought things were bad until I got in here, and now I think (laughs) things are really bad. (laughs) My point isn't to be a defeatist. I'm not saying just lay down and give up and it's all over. That's not saying any of that. I do not know that the future in America is bleak. I do not know that. I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I have no idea what the Lord will do in the coming years. I do know, however, the Lord will do all his holy will. That's what I know. What I can say, it's not looking good right now. America's future has looked bleak before, though. And she's risen from the ashes. I know people are freaking out about this election. Listen, I've lived long enough to remember when people freaked out that Clinton was elected and freaked out when Bush was elected and freaked out when Obama was elected. Every president, it was the end of the world. They're the Antichrist. Who knows what's coming next? What's going to happen? It's the end of the republic every single time. Here's the thing. Charles Dickens wrote in the 1850s that Americans are peculiar because every election cycle, they imagine it's the end of their republic. That's 170 years ago. Being pessimistic about the near term future of America is not my point. Not my point. Rather, I'm striving to be a biblical realist. And as a biblical realist, here's what I do know America is a kingdom of man. And all the kingdoms of men rage against God and his anointed. All of them. My point is that Psalm 2 tells me that their plotting and raging against Christ's kingdom is futile. It's all in vain. The Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. He holds them in derision. I would tell you that you ought to have a kind of eschatological sense of humor about all this. Not a scatological sense of humor. That's not good. It's immature. It's junior highish. But an eschatological sense of humor. In other words, you ought to be able to sit back and see things from the Lord's perspective. As the nations rage, you ought to be able to laugh along with him at the futility of it all. Because the Lord has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. The nations had better bow before Christ and kiss the son, lest he be angry and they perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. But it's hard to believe that when we're being assaulted by the world and the flesh and the devil. It's hard to believe all that, though when it looks like Satan and sin and death have the upper hand. It looks like they have the victory. So how do I endure in faith? Wednesday morning, I found out that the elections didn't turn out as I might have hoped they would or didn't seem to be. I also got a call that one of my longtime friends had died that night. And on that morning, I'm thinking, man, sin and Satan and death sure seem to have the upper hand. So how do I endure in faith now? I had just returned on that morning from two nights earlier finding out that one of the young women in our church found out she has cancer. Man, Satan and sin and death sure seem to have the upper hand. How do I trust the Lord? How do I trust Christ when the world seems to be given over to wickedness? How do I trust God's promises when Christ's return seems so delayed? Well, Christ gives us a glorious example from which to learn in the person of Noah. We can learn from Noah's example in Hebrews eleven seven. Noah was a man who lived in an era when all the world was wicked. Noah was mocked for his belief that the Lord would come in judgment on the world and save his family. So Noah makes a good example for us to consider. Here's what I want you to notice about Noah. There's really three things I want to talk about this morning. First, the faith of Noah. Second, the fruit of Noah's faith. And third, the reward for Noah's faith. So that's it. The faith of Noah, the fruit of his faith, and the reward for his faith. So let's look first at the faith of Noah. Look at Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, that flood that was yet unseen, being warned of that, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. If you want to know what this direct sentence is, by faith, Noah, Noah being the subject, here's the verb, constructed object an ark by faith Noah constructed an ark how many of you guys have thought about Noah's building of an ark as an act of faith by faith Noah constructed an ark as with everyone in this chapter Noah's Christian life is summed up as doing what he did by faith verse 4 by faith Abel offered to God verse 5 by faith Enoch was taken up verse 7 by faith Noah constructed an ark Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed. By faith he went to live in the promised land. Verse 9, verse 11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive. Verse 20, by faith Isaac invoked future blessings. Verse 21, by faith Jacob when dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Verse 22, by faith Joseph at the end of his life. Verse 23, by faith Moses when he was born. It goes on. Are you following the trend? Verse 31, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. Noah's Christian life, as with all of these Old Testament saints' Christian lives, are summed up with this phrase, by faith. By faith, they did what they did. What did Noah believe, though? Where was his faith? Where was his trust? Well, I think most fundamentally, we should say Noah believed the Lord. He believed all that God had revealed. And let me address two truths Noah believed. First, Noah believed in the promise of the Christ, the seed of the woman who would come to save the world. He believed that. He even preached the promise of the Christ. We're told that both in 2 Peter 2 and 1 Peter 3. Second, Noah believed God's word in all that God reveals. So he believed the promise of the Christ, and he believed everything else God revealed to him. The Lord promised the seed of the woman would come. He promised the Messiah would come from Adam and Eve. And then we see that promise being passed down through the genealogical record in Genesis. So let's look at the genealogy just so you follow that. Keep your hand in Hebrews 11, but look over at Genesis chapter 5. If you remember our story thus far, we get the creation account. We get the fall into sin account. And then we get the account of the first son of Adam and Eve, Cain, and the second son of Adam and Eve, Abel, and Cain kills Abel. Then we get the account of Cain's family, and then we hear at the end of Genesis chapter 4 that God gave Adam and Eve another son named Seth, the godly son. And then we get this genealogy, chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations, the genealogy of, of Adam. Now I don't have time to teach you all of Genesis, but you need to understand that Genesis is arranged around 10 genealogies intentionally. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Do you guys just notice what they skipped? Cain and Abel. Because the genealogy is directed at telling you from whom is the seed of the woman coming. The one who will save us. The one promised in Genesis 3.15. And so they just go right to the son of Adam through whom he's coming. He's not coming through wicked Cain. He's not coming through dead Abel. He's coming through godly Seth. And so we get this genealogy which walks down through the years. But let's fast forward to Enoch. Look down at Genesis 5.18. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Now, Enoch comes up in our narrative in Hebrews. That's why I go there. Look down at verse 22. We'll get some more information about Enoch. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons of daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, Jason... Spent a lot of time on Enoch in his sermon last week, so I encourage you to go there and listen to that. But here's what I want you to gather just to be reminded of today. Jason pointed this out to us last week. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the one which Hebrews quotes from. In the Septuagint, this language, walked with God in Hebrew, is translated in Greek. That translation comes over as Enoch pleased him. And what we're told in Hebrews chapter 11 is that Enoch pleased God by faith. Thus we're told in Hebrews eleven six. 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So Enoch pleased God by faith, by faith in Christ, in the coming Messiah. Now look down the genealogy a bit more to verse 28 of chapter 5. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Now pay attention to why he called him Noah. You're getting at the meaning of his name, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So there's a prophetic name given to Noah that in some way Noah is going to bring rest from the curse of the ground. Noah is in the genealogy of the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is coming through him. Noah has been given by the Lord To bring some relief or rest from the curse. But during Noah's life the world had become wicked. And the Lord decreed that he would destroy the wicked world. And save Noah's family. Thus bringing some rest. Look at Genesis chapter 6. We won't read the whole thing. But just drop down to verse 7. Because we get a summary in the comparison of the world with Noah. So the Lord said, verse 7. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. This is referencing God's disgust over their wickedness. Now, look what he says in his settled opposition to their wickedness. Now, look what it says in verse 8, though, about Noah. But Noah found favor. You can easily translate that, and some versions do found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace. That's not something Noah earned or merited. That's the opposite of grace. Noah received grace. The Lord was gracious to Noah. And this grace God showed to Noah is demonstrated in Noah's faith. God was gracious to Noah. Therefore, Noah believed. Look at Genesis 6-9. These are the generations of Noah. You're getting another genealogy. Notice that. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Notice these two phrases. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And then notice the next phrase, Noah walked with God. Noah was a righteous man and Noah walked with God or in the Septuagint, in the Greek, Noah pleased God. Here's the first question this provokes. How was Noah righteous? We know from Romans 3, verses 9 and following, quoting the Psalms, we know that no one is righteous, no, not one. So how was Noah righteous? By faith in Christ by faith in christ that's how noah was righteous god was gracious to noah and so noah believed the promise of the seed of the woman we're told in hebrews 10 38 which is one of the brackets around hebrews 11 that the one who is righteous shall live by faith quoting habakkuk 2 4 romans 1 16 and 17 picks up this same quotation when paul writes there for i'm not ashamed of the gospel For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he goes on to say, For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the just, the righteous one, shall live by faith. See, we receive the righteousness of God by faith in Christ. That's how Noah was the righteous. By trusting in Christ and his work, a man is declared righteous. Noah trusted in the Christ in fact Noah preached the gospel we're going to see that in a little bit now here's the second question that's provoked how did Noah please God because Noah walked with God or like I said just as with Enoch Noah pleased God how did Noah please God here's the same answer by faith in Christ by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone for without faith it is impossible to please God these Old Testament saints, all these Old Testament saints, were righteous by faith in Christ. They all pleased God by faith in Christ. That's what Hebrews 11 39 and 40 are going to come after. They were looking forward to the promise of Christ. They didn't receive Him during their lifetimes, but we did. We received Him in our lifetime. Noah was in the covenant of grace, and he believed in the promises of Christ. Now, Noah did not receive Christ during his lifetime. He didn't historically come in Noah's lifetime. But Noah did look forward to him in faith. Christ belonged to Noah by faith. Because, precisely because, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And because Noah had the grace of faith in Christ, Noah also believed the word of the Lord. Listen to this. Because Noah had the grace of faith in Christ, Noah also believed the word of the Lord regarding everything else the Lord said. So when God spoke prophetically and said to Noah, I will judge the world in a great flood and I will save your family on an ark that you are to build, Noah believed the Lord. Look at Hebrews 11, 7 again. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Noah heard God speak about coming events, the flood, and he believed the Lord, and he obediently built the ark. He believed the Lord's promise of the Christ by grace through faith. He believed, therefore, everything else the Lord revealed to him. This is fundamental to Christianity, incidentally. You're going to see the same example, for example, in James 2 with Abraham. Abraham believed the Lord and was credited to him as righteousness. Therefore, Abraham believed the Lord and took Isaac up on to the mountain to sacrifice him, believing the Lord would be able to raise him from the dead. Abraham believed the promise of the Christ. Therefore, Abraham believed everything else the Lord told him and acted in obedience. And this leads to our second point, the fruit of Noah's faith. That's Noah's faith. What is the fruit of it? Again, look at Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. What was the fruit of Noah's faith? In reverent fear, he constructed an ark. God said, build an ark, I'm going to judge the world of the flood. And in reverent fear, Noah built an ark. He obeyed. The Lord spoke, Noah believed, and the fruit of that faith was reverent fear. Now what is this reverent fear? What is that? This same Greek word is used with regard to the fear that Christ has in Hebrews chapter 5. It's a reverent fear. What is it? Noah feared, I'll just sum it up this way, Noah feared the holiness and power and justice of God coming upon the earth. He feared the awesome power of God coming in wrath against the world. He feared the day of the flood, for it was the day of God's wrath. But Noah feared what would come upon any who did not heed the word of the Lord. See, Noah knew that the ark would save him and his household. But Noah also knew that whoever did not believe what he was preaching would be damned. He knew that. Noah further feared displeasing his father who had been gracious to him. Like a son who reveres his father, he runs to him. So Noah ran to the Father and trusted in the Father's provision of his salvation, but Noah feared the judgment coming upon the earth. And Noah's fear led to two results, obedience and preaching. Hear that? Noah's fear led to obedience and preaching or proclamation. Noah obediently built the ark. Obediently built the ark. Noah also preached the gospel. He evangelized while being mocked. Noah, in fact, preached in the spirit of Christ, we're told, in 1 Peter three eighteen through 20 2 Peter 2, 5 tells us that Noah was a herald of righteousness. That means Noah was a gospel preacher. There is no other way to be a herald of righteousness but to be a herald of the righteousness that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other kind of herald of righteousness. He was a gospel preacher. Noah preached the gospel by the Spirit of Christ. He pointed to Christ and Noah's ark itself was a type of the Christ. Men would be saved, listen, men would be saved through the watery judgment of God on the ark. And we see that fulfilled, that type fulfilled in Christian baptism. Did you know that? We are saved through the flood waters of judgment by the true ark, who is Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 3.21. When you go under the waters in baptism and emerge anew, the picture is that you have been saved through the floodwaters of God's judgment by Christ. 1 Peter 3.21, speaking of Noah's ark and the flood, says baptism corresponds to this. Noah believed the Lord. He responded with fear and obedience in gospel proclamation. Now, I want you to consider the difficulty of this for a minute. Because it's easy to sort of take these short accounts of Old Testament saints and flatten them, and then just not spend much time thinking about them, not wondering what it must have been like for them in life. Noah had to patiently trust the word of the Lord for what he could not see for 120 years. The Lord told him, judgment is coming upon all the earth. Build an ark, a flood is on its way. Warn the people to flee from God's wrath. Preach the gospel. Noah begins doing that. And he continues that for 120 years. Just stop and think about that for a minute. None of us, most likely, maybe text, will <laughs> live for 120 years. None of us will. Longer than our lifetime, Noah waited. He had to do this in the face of a world who mocked him. The world around him did not believe him. They thought he was crazy. Imagine how crazy Noah must have seemed to them. He's building an ark where there is no water. Imagine we told people that God's judgment was coming by flood. I mean, they surely dismissed him as a crazy person, right? Jesus says they did. Look at Matthew twenty-four thirty-eight. Jesus is going to compare his coming to the situation of Noah's Ark. Matthew 24 and verse 38. For as were the days of Noah, guys catch this, that's comparative language. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In what sense? For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the Ark, And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Do you hear the point Jesus is making here? During the days of Noah, they were being warned that a great judgment is coming upon the earth. Noah's warning them. He's building an ark. They're disregarding him. They are eating and drinking and being merry. They are marrying and giving in marriage. They're going about life as if this is the way it will be on into eternity. And they're disregarding Noah. They're mocking Noah. And they're caught completely unaware when the flood comes as Noah boards the ark. And he says, it will be like this when the Son of Man returns, when Christ returns to the earth. His church will be out proclaiming the gospel. The return of Christ is coming. He came as a lamb. He will return as a lion to judge all the earth. Be warned ready yourself and as in those days of Noah so in these days people are eating and drinking and being merry they're giving in marriage and getting married as if this is the way it will be on into eternity he goes on to say by the way just as a side note this is an extra one for free not that it costs you for any of it but look what he says then verse 40, two men will be in a field one will be taken and one left two women will be grinding at the mill one will be taken and one left Therefore, stay awake. What's interesting about this is in current prophecy circles, everybody's like, well, you want to be taken in the rapture, not left behind. We've completely flipped that language on its head. The people who were taken here were taken away in the flood of judgment. The people left behind are the people who were on the ark. We miss it entirely and just make it say something it doesn't. They were eating and drinking and being merry. They were not believing Noah's, in their minds, foolish tales about God's judgment by flood and about God graciously saving Noah and his family. Noah must have seemed arrogant to them. God's going to save my family. He's going to destroy all of yours. He must have seemed incredibly exclusivistic. You mean the whole world's going to go to hell, but you and your seven and then eight, including him, eight family members are going to be saved. Yes, that's what I mean, because we're the only ones trusting the Lord. Noah believed in something that he could not see, and he patiently waited for it for 120 years. And Noah's reverent fear drove him to build an ark and to proclaim the gospel of Christ to others. He desired, listen, Noah desired that others would repent and come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. Now think of the application of this to first century Hebrew Christians. These Christians were being mocked, insulted, imprisoned, and killed. They were suffering many losses for the sake of the Christ. They were walking by faith, trusting the Lord for his promised return, but they could not see Christ on his throne. They could not yet see his soon coming return. Christ had promised them he would return to judge the living and the dead to save his people, but he had not yet come. And the Hebrew Christians were being encouraged by the example of Noah. They were being mocked, by the way. 2 Peter chapter 3, where is this Christ? Why is he so delayed? You said he's coming. Where is he? The answer they're given by Peter is a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day for the Lord. Don't sweat it. It's not been late for him. He's not late in coming. We should be encouraged by this as well. Where to trust the Lord. His word is true. Think of God's patience with sinners in the days of Noah. Think of God's patience with sinners in our own day. In the days of Noah, he waited 120 years, allowing Noah to preach the whole time before his judgment swept across the earth. Think of his patience now. Nearly 2,000 years, he has warned the world that the Son will return to judge living and the dead And yet, we're told by Peter, he has patiently waited as the gospel has spread across the earth. So here's my question for us, Sovereign Grace. Do we have a reverent fear of the Lord? Does our fear give rise to proclaiming that there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus Christ? Noah's continual building of the ark and preaching of the gospel was a witness of God's judgment to unbelievers and the corresponding witness to salvation of God's people. In the new covenant era, baptism into Christ's church, gathering as a body of believers like we are this morning who hear the word and receive the sacraments and walk in holiness and proclaim the gospel to unbelievers, is a witness to the same. We're here worshiping a crucified Messiah while the world is out there ignorantly eating and drinking and being merry. But we know the world's future. As we gather to worship or meet in grace groups or care for one another, as we spend time in the word, as we pray, as we build a church facility, as we send out missionaries, as we evangelize our neighbors, we are witnesses to our neighbors and against our neighbors. As 2 Corinthians 2 says, we're an aroma of life to life for some and an aroma of death to death for others. We look crazy to the world. As they go out eating and drinking and being merry while we spend our time preparing for the return of Christ and his final judgment. I want to pause here for just a second and say something that's not in my notes, which is usually regrettable for me. But I'm going to do it anyway. I'm a bit concerned about the way I see Christians acting around an election. I'm a bit concerned about it. I'm okay with the fact that Christians look out and say, we want elections to be free and fair and all of that. Fine. That's being a good citizen. But when we start to act like the world in the way we ravage the other party, we're missing the main point, aren't we? What do you want? You want Nancy Pelosi to be a conservative Republican or to be saved? I mean, I think we'd rather get victory over Congress than see those folks who don't believe in Christ go to heaven. I'm concerned about that. Yes, fight for what you believe is right and good for your neighbor. That is good. Fight for what you believe is good and right for your neighbor. And part of your responsibility in that is voting, but... Please don't make these things ultimate, where you take your neighbor on the other side of the aisle and wish for them that they would become a Republican more than you wish for them that they would come to faith in Christ. We can win the Congress for Republican Party and the presidency and every state house in America, and the whole country can still go to hell. Do You understand that? And we've won nothing as a church. Here's what I want you to gather from Noah's example. Noah feared God more than man. He feared God's judgment against the world more than being personally ridiculed and persecuted. He feared God's judgment against the world more than he feared for his own nation. He feared God more than he feared missing out on the prosperity of the wicked. And this showed up in his life and ministry. You know, this affects the way we raise our kids, doesn't it? Listen to what Thomas Manton said about this. He's a Puritan writer. Oh, fear the Lord, not only for your own sakes, but for your children's sake. This will be the best way to provide for your children, not to heap up wealth and honor for them, but to leave them the honor and wealth and privileges of the covenant. Though you have nothing to leave them, yet leave them God's love, and that will be enough. It is a usual observation. Here it is. Ready for the observation? Many parents go to hell in getting an estate for their children, and their children go to hell afterward in spending that estate. This affects our marriages. Listen, it isn't about being romantic or being personally fulfilled. Marriage is about serving the other and together making Christ known. You don't exist for date nights. You understand that? That's not why God gave you a marriage. He didn't give you a marriage so you can have romantic date nights. He gave you a marriage so you're partnered with somebody to make him known. It's about bearing children and raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. This affects being single. Being single is also not about dating or romance or getting married. It isn't about finding the person that we just fall head over heels for, nor is it about finding sexual pleasure. It's about honoring the Lord with our hearts and minds, using our time for the Lord and only taking interest in a potential spouse who wants to do the same. This affects our work. It isn't about success or wealth or personal fulfillment. Frankly, the question of personal fulfillment with regard to work is a relatively new one altogether and would be bizarre to prior generations entirely, and would be bizarre to many areas of the world currently. What do you have work for so that you can do everything the Lord gives you to do as unto the Lord? The whole of our life is given to this one great end, that we might know the Lord and make him known, that we might glorify God and enjoy him forever. We long to gather with him in that great day when faith becomes sight and we have our reward. That leads to our third point the reward of Noah's faith, and this one will come quickly. Look at Hebrews eleven seven, The last phrase, by this he condemned the world, by this constructing of an ark and reverent faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's faith condemned the world and made him an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Christian, I know these days can be difficult. It can be difficult to feel a deep uncertainty about where our nation is headed. It can be difficult. It can be hard to suffer through the troubled economy that has come, not largely because of a pandemic, but because of our culture's enslaving fear of death. But by faith, we see Christ, and we see our great reward in him. We are heirs with Christ, heirs of his righteousness. We are those who will receive the new heavens and the new earth. We will see God as he is. And enter the joy of our master. We do not need to fear the world, but rather trust and fear the Lord. So here's my challenge to you I challenge you to begin to cultivate a strong faith and enduring hope in the return of Christ. In the return of Christ, your true reward. You were given faith that fears the Lord. Begin cultivating that reverent fear. How you do that? Here's one step think daily of heaven with Christ, think daily of heaven with Christ and think daily of the hell your neighbors will face without him daily think daily of heaven with Christ and think daily of the hell your neighbors will face without him then trust and obey him and proclaim him to those who don't it's really that simple this kingdom of man is always uncertain always uncertain but here's the good news we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire let me pray